Let's read the word of God. Philippians 1, 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having some confidence in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This has been the word of God. Amen, amen. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, worship team. Harvest, you may go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Well, we're going to continue in our uh, series through the book of Philippians entitled Joy in the Journey. Uh, This is our third sermon in this series. We're in chapter 1. And just as Steve read, we'll be considering verses 12 through 18 this morning. Joy in the journey. What takes our joy? What steals our joy? This morning, as we consider these verses, it really comes down to two things. It's our circumstances and our critics. Our circumstances and our critics steal our joy, specifically when we fail to respond well. And we all have tough circumstances. We all have tough critics that come about in our lives. I'm going to share something with you even this morning. As I was getting in the car, I spilled my coffee on myself. I know, I know. Even something like that can very easily rob us of our joy. But you want to know something? It's really not the circumstances and the critics that rob us of our joy. It's really ourselves. It's really ourselves as we face circumstances, as we face critics. It's choosing not to have joy because of those things. Joy is a choice, and that's exactly what we see here in the text. My outline this morning is very, very simple. In fact, you you could probably already fill it out just based on the introduction there. But I want to consider two things from our text this morning Things that we need to choose joy in when we face them. And the first one is this. When you face tough circumstances, choose joy because God is working. When you face tough circumstances, choose joy because God is working. Verse 12, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So here we are in the book of Philippians. We have talked about the salutation at the beginning, his greeting to the church. We talked about his thanksgiving and his prayers for them. Paul is following the typical outline of an epistle in the first century. 
They would open up with who is sending the letter. They would open up with who's receiving the letter. They would give some salutation. They would give a, a thanks. And Paul's following that pattern. And we get to verse 12 and we get to the body of the letter. Now we're finally getting to the meat. And at this point in a typical letter, Paul, or the writer that is, would give you an update on what's going on in their lives. It updates you on this or that or the other. This is the part where when you were young and your mom said you need to write a letter to so-and-so, which we all loved, this is the part that you would say, how are you? I am fine. <laughs> Paul goes into a lot more detail than I am fine. But just as he did with the salutation and just as he did with the thanksgiving and prayers, he Christianizes the body of the letter. He Christianizes the update. He actually doesn't focus on his circumstances. He mentions them, of course. But he's more interested in the outcome of his circumstances. He's more interested in the results. So he writes about his circumstances, but he's more interested in the results. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's his focus. It served to advance the gospel. His circumstances and his critics have served to advance the gospel. How? How in the world could they have served to advance the gospel? Look at, look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. Now we've talked about this, but just to give you a reminder, Philippians is a prison letter. Paul is in prison and likely he is chained to at least one, if not two guards. So he's always with somebody. And by the way, I read one commentary this week that said that the chains were about 18 inches. So you had 18 inches between you and someone else all the time. And, and I say he's in prison, but, but really it's speculated that he's actually in a house. He's under house arrest and that he actually has to finance this house himself. He pays for his own rent. Now think about that. As a prisoner being forced to somehow provide for your own living quarters. That's where he is. That's what he's facing right now as he's writing this letter. And he says, well, by the way, by the way, he's in, he's in prison. He's in Rome, likely in Rome. That's what we believe is going on. But he didn't get there the way he'd hoped. All throughout Paul's ministry, all throughout the book of Acts, Paul wanted to get to Rome. He wanted to get to Rome because all roads, all roads, wow, all roads, all roads lead to Rome. Rome was the capital. If you could get to Rome and get the church going from there, then it could spread to everywhere else in the known world. He wanted to get to Rome, and by the time he finally got there, he didn't get there the way he's intended. In fact, um, read this. It's going to be on the screen. Romans 1, 13 through 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He wanted to get there. And when he finally got there, he got there in chains. How in the world could Paul do what he does? Minister the gospel, 
plant churches, make disciples. How can he do that when he's in chains? He says in verse 13, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and do all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now that term there, the imperial guard, that refers to the praetorium. The praetorium was a, a group of elite, hand-picked soldiers. There was estimated about 10,000 only. And their job, their main job, was to protect the emperor. Paul is chained to an elite soldier who is trained, who, who is hand-picked. These guys were the fighters. These guys were the, the Navy SEALs, you might say, of their day. And what's happening? He's chained to one and roughly estimated about every four hours they would switch out. What does that mean? That means about every four hours, Paul has someone new to witness to. Who's chained to who? You know, whenever, whenever I fly, there's, there's a part of me that feels compelled to kind of share my faith with whomever I'm sitting next to. And, and sometimes I, I get that opportunity and praise the Lord, and sometimes I don't. But neither of us are going anywhere for a while, so God's provided an opportunity. What's getting known, though, is that Paul's not a criminal. He's not in prison because he's done anything wrong. He's in prison for this guy, Jesus Christ. And these, these, these soldiers are coming in, rotating in and out, and they're hearing him. He's witnessing to them. Or if you look at the verse, it says, the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Who's that all the rest? Probably, we're not 100% sure, but probably people coming and going, people coming to take down letters that he's dictating, people coming to minister to his needs, people coming from the church at Rome. So people are hearing, and the guards are hearing him interact with people as they come in and out of the, of the prison, and word is getting out. Some of these soldiers, it's likely, are even getting saved and taking that word throughout their other fellow soldiers and through Caesar's household. And we know that because in Philippians 4.22, Paul sends a greeting from the saints in Caesar's household. So think about this. Guards are hearing the gospel, some of which are likely getting saved. The message is getting spread that this guy, Paul, he hasn't committed anything wrong. He's here for this guy, Jesus, that he preaches is the way, the truth, and the life. And that message is spreading to Caesar's soldiers and Caesar's household, which is not something he could have done as a free man. The gospel message is getting to places he could have never taken it as a free man. And you can just see his joy in this as he's in this, this circumstances that he did not, he would not have chosen, but he sees that God is working. God is bringing the gospel into Caesar's own house. Now that is inspiring. It's so inspiring that look at the next verse. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He says most of the brothers, that word brothers there is the word Adelphoi, and it can refer to brothers and sisters. So what's happening here? The, 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 the um, community of the church at Rome is emboldened to share the gospel because Paul is in prison and he's not letting that stop him. 
They are emboldened to proclaim the gospel. They are inspired despite what's happened. Now, that's encouraging to me. And I'm sure that's encouraging to you as we think about, wow, Paul's in prison. He really could have gone to a place in his mind, in his heart, where a place of darkness and a place of despair and a place of, why, God, haven't I served you faithfully for years? And it's, it's, it's an encouragement to us that here he is, he's in prison, and he's preaching the gospel. That's inspiring. But you know what? That's inspiring to me and to you on one level, but it's inspiring to the church and back in the first century on another level because persecution was commonplace. Persecution in their day was commonplace. And how easy, think about it, how easy would it have been to get discouraged because people you know are hurting. People you know are being persecuted. People you know are are in prison. People you know may even be losing their lives because of this gospel. Think about how discouraging that. Think about if we had to come to church every Sunday and the first thing that you thought when you walked in those doors and you looked around is, who's not here? Who's in prison? Who got killed this week? That would be discouraging. We think about people like Stephen and James and even Paul and Silas. By the way, Philippi was the city that Paul and Silas were thrown in prison when they became to preach the gospel. Imagine the discouragement, and yet here's this man, an apostle of the church, whose influence goes all over the known world. He's in prison for his faith, and he is saying, this is advancing the gospel. That is inspiring. Watching bold leaders under stress is inspiring. Remember that scene in the Lord of the Rings? This is from the movie, not the book. It's at the, near the end of the movie when Aragorn has finally accepted his, his identity as the next king. He leads his army to the gates of Mordor, which if you don't know, Mordor was the land of the enemy. And his army is completely surrounded by orcs and trolls and other hideous things. And Aragorn steps forward and he looks back at his army with his sword in his hand and he says, for Frodo, which is the hobbit that they were protecting. And it's inspiring. And his whole army charges into battle with him, watching leaders under stress doing the right thing, that is inspiring. Perhaps many of you have heard of Reverend Richland Wormbrandt, who spent 14 years being tortured because of his faith. We hear about those stories, and those are inspiring. John MacArthur writes about this passage. He says, As they saw how God protected him and blessed his ministry, despite persecution and imprisonment, their courage was renewed and their boldness and zeal intensified. His strength became their strength as his example touched them. Through the Holy Spirit, the impact of that one faithful life revolutionized and energized the entire church. The apostles, fellow saints, discovered that like the cowardice they once experienced, courage is contagious. Paul did not let his circumstances Mar the fact that God was using them to advance the gospel. He chose to be joyful despite his circumstances. So my question then is, Harvest, do you do the same? How do you let your circumstances 
hinder the gospel? Are you letting your circumstances affect your attitude? Things aren't going my way. Not at home, not at work, not in my neighborhood. Things are not going my way. And instead of choosing to joy, instead of choosing to see what God is doing, are you allowing those circumstances to pull you down and affect your witness? Are you choosing pity parties over praise? Where in your life do you need to choose joy despite your circumstances? Are you looking beyond the heaviness of life? And it is heavy. Are you looking beyond the heaviness of life to see what God is doing? That's what Paul did. And that's my challenge to you. He didn't, don't, don't think he didn't struggle. Don't think he didn't have his dark days. Absolutely he did. But through it all, he chose to see that God is using this for his glory and he rejoices. He rejoices, he chooses joy in his struggle. So what is God trying to do in your life despite your circumstances? Paul chooses joy despite his circumstances and the next thing we see, he chooses joy despite his critics. When you, when you face tough critics, choose joy because God is working. When you face tough critics, choose joy because God is working. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So he's talking about the advancement of the gospel, and he shifts just a little bit. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Now he's talking about two different groups of people here. A group of people that's proclaiming the gospel, but they're doing it out of envy. And another group that's proclaiming the same message, but they're doing it out of goodwill. One group is, is jealous. The other group is pure. One group wants to put Paul down. The other group understands what Paul's going through. We're talking about motives. We're talking about the same gospel being proclaimed by different people with different motives. One out of goodwill, one out of jealousy. Paul elaborates in verse 16. The latter those out of goodwill, the latter do it out of love, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now, everywhere Paul went, he faced critics. Everywhere Paul went, they questioned his apostleship, they questioned his message, Everywhere he went, he faced critics. In fact, I shared with you a few weeks ago that one of the things Paul did not include in the opening to Philippians is he did not include a defense of his apostleship because he didn't have to with that church. That church accepted his apostleship. But everywhere he went, he faced some form of critics. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, he writes out credentials, his credentials of an apostle because there were some that were undermining his authority. He wrote in Galatians 1.11, For I would have you know brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He has to defend the fact that he's preaching the gospel because people were saying he's preaching man's message. He's preaching something he got from another man. And Paul's like, no, I'm preaching the message I got from Jesus Christ. He had to defend himself from critics everywhere he went. He was constantly defending himself. And here he is in chains and still receiving word that there are people out there who are criticizing him. One group proclaiming Christ out of rivalry and selfish ambition. In other words, they're using the gospel to promote themselves. There was envy. What were, what were they envious over? Probably envious over Paul's influence. Probably envious over his apostleship. And they want that. So they teach the same message. Hoping to gain that same amount of influence. And Paul says, it even goes further. He says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What does that mean? What is likely going on here is that they are pointing to the fact that Paul is in prison and they're using it as a way of saying God's judging him. He's in chains, God's judging, kind of like Job's friends, right? Said, you're sinning, Job, that's why God's doing this to you. There's this group of people proclaiming the gospel, most likely using Paul's imprisonment as a means of discrediting him. And they see this as a way to advance themselves. R. Kent Hughes quotes on this, and he says, he says this, these preachers were petty, territorial, calculating, and focused on self-promotion. Paul's diminution could mean their elevation. Let's point to him because he's in prison right now. We could use this to elevate ourselves and our own ministry. Now we look at a passage like this, and immediately I see a direct application to pastors, to elders to ministry leaders, to those who teach the gospel. I see a direct application. When we teach the gospel, elders, when we teach the gospel, harvest kids, teachers, we need to teach the gospel out of love. Not to advance ourselves. And don't get me wrong, because the temptation, the temptation is great, but we need to advance the gospel out of love. So there's, there's a direct application here to pastors and ministry workers, but there's a greater principle here. There's a greater principle here when it comes to the idea of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. There's a greater principle here that extends to all of us. Proverbs 14.30 reads, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy makes the bones rot. Tim Keller defines envy like this. He says, envy is wanting someone else's life or resenting someone else's life. Envy is being unhappy at other people's happiness, weeping because people rejoice, rejoicing because they're weeping. The great British actor John Gielgud was quoted once saying this. When Sir Lawrence Olivier played Hamlet in 1948 and the critics raved, I wept. Hmm. 
When Sir Lawrence Olivier played Hamlet in, the, in 1948 and the critics raved, I wept. Why? Envy. So let me ask you this question. How is envy true of you? This is something that we all face. Maybe some more than others, sure, but we all face envy and jealousy and rivalry even. How is this true of you? By the way, it was jealousy that drove Satan to fall. How is jealousy true of us? Who in your life are you envious of? Who in your life, as the quote by Tim Keller says, who in your life do you weep when they rejoice and do you rejoice when they weep? Maybe just even inwardly. Maybe that's not something you show, but maybe inwardly you struggle with that. Let me ask another question. Who in your life envies you? Maybe you know that, maybe you don't. But if you do, do you take advantage of that? Do you rub your nose in it? Are you gleeful because you know this person envies my life? It is a slippery road and an easy, easy trap to fall into. Paul here is speaking directly, though, to people proclaiming the gospel out of selfish ambition. But he says of the second group, the other second group does it out of love. Out of love. Why? Look at verse 16 again. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. They know the real reason why Paul's in chains. It's not because he's being punished by the Lord. It's because he proclaims the gospel. And the culture doesn't like that. And Rome doesn't like that. And the Jews don't like that. That's why Paul's here. Not because he's being punished by the Lord. He's being used by the Lord. And he says they do it out of love. Their reason for proclaiming the gospel is out of love, out of love for the Lord, out of love for Paul, out of love for people. Love is the right motive to proclaim the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.5 reads, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, that's the goal, but there are times even in our lives that we don't proclaim the gospel with right motives. And even in our day, there are people who do not proclaim the gospel with right motives. Perhaps you've heard the name Robert Tilton. In the early 90s, televangelist who would get on TV and have these, everybody watch my air quotes, revelations from the Lord and then encouraged people to support him, and he made millions. You say to me, well, that's an extreme example. Yeah, that's an extreme example, and you might even argue, he's not even preaching the right gospel. You're right. He wasn't preaching the right gospel. But there are other examples, and this one's painful. Ravi Zacharias, who did proclaim the gospel, and of course, after he passed, we learned that he used his influence in evil ways. And that hurts, and that hits closer to home, but you might say, well, that's still, you know, big names out there. Does that hit us? I once had a professor in school, loved him, was a great professor, 
he sat down with us one time and confessed that he, before he became a professor, he'd been a youth pastor at a church. And when he left that place, of course, another came in to fill that role, and he confessed to us that for a long time, he wanted that man to fail because of the envy in his heart. Now, praise God. God got a hold of him. God showed him the areas of his heart that were wrong, and he said he just sat and just stunned one day when God revealed to him his own envy. Yes, it hits close to home. You might be asking the question, what do we do about this? What do we do about televangelists? Or what do we do about teachers who seem to be on the up and up? Paul writes in verse 18, he says, what then? Now that's two Greek words. It's tigar. And it was a common expression when they were concluding a matter or when they were coming to the end of an argument, they would say tigar. What then? What do we do about this? What is the end result of this? And that's the question he's asking now. What is the conclusion of the matter? What do we, 2,000 years later, do about the fact that other churches and other pastors preach the gospel with wrong motives? When the gospel is proclaimed by disqualified people, what do we do about that? For one, I think we need to remember that we can't know a person's heart fully. We need to be aware of that. But sometimes it is evident from the life of a person that they might be proclaiming the gospel, but they are not proclaiming it with pure motives of love. And we need to remember we can't control people. And we need to know that we can't be gospel police. It's not my job to tear down church doors and drag pastors out who are not worthy to preach the gospel. That's not my job. What do we do when the gospel is proclaimed by disqualified people? Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Paul is so enamored with the gospel that he is simply joyful that it just gets out. Whether in pretense or in truth, whether with false motives or true motives, the gospel is getting out, and in that he rejoices. The gospel is going out, and that is the main thing. Why? Because the word of God is more powerful than the messenger. The message of God is more powerful than the messenger. Think about Jonah. When he finally, reluctantly, agreed to go to Nineveh, he didn't even go through the whole city He went through part of the city proclaiming that the city will be destroyed. And what happened? The whole city repented. Why? Because God's message is more powerful than God's messenger. Are there people who sit under preachers with impure motives who get saved? Absolutely. When I was in college, They talked a lot and drilled into us the necessity to preach within the context. Do you know what that means? Like, don't rip out a verse and make it say something you want it to say. You read the verses around that verse and make sure that you're within the context of Scripture. That's a good thing. That's something we needed to learn. Something I'm still learning. 
But what kind of developed in our minds as students? And I remember having conversations with fellow students. We would talk about how, well, this church isn't doing that, and, and this pastor over here is not doing that. They're, they're really just ripping scripture out of context all the time and kind of developed a bad attitude in our mouths or a bad taste in our mouths toward these people. Now, don't get me wrong. We should learn to teach God's word accurately. Absolutely, but I'm, I'm making a point here, and the point is this. Can God use well-meaning, ignorant people to share the gospel? Yes, he can. On the flip side, can God use selfish, glory-hogging, doctrinally accurate people to share the gospel? Yes, he can. And that is what Paul is rejoicing about is that I know it's going out in pretense, but it's going out. And people are getting saved. And that's why Paul rejoices. So we strive to be biblically accurate. And that's one of the jobs that the elders have here in the church is to make sure that we're being biblically accurate, make sure when I'm preaching a sermon that it's biblically accurate. We need to do that. But Paul here rejoices in the fact that the gospel is simply getting out. So despite the motives of either group, the gospel is getting out. But the topic of motives brings up a thought. And maybe this was inspired a little bit by my small group this past week. We talked about this. We talked about motives Specifically, motives when we go to pray, good motives versus bad motives. We all deal with motives. I was talking to a friend this week, and he even confessed to me that he struggles with motives, even when he stands before people teaching the word. He struggles with, I want their attention, and I want their laughter at my jokes, but, but what I really want is to proclaim the gospel, and that war of motives kind of struggles in his heart. Anyone else been there? I've been there. I struggle with my motives sometimes. What do we do when we have this, this motive struggle? Well, I think self-examination is a good thing. And I think we do stop and we examine our own hearts and our own motives. And we look to see, where were my motives pure? Where are my motives not pure? But you know, I also think that self-examination can go too far. And I've been guilty of that where I examine and I examine and I worry about my motives and my motives to the point where I'm not self-examining, I'm self-condemning. What do we do, though? We repent where we know is wrong. We were wrong. We take our thoughts captive and we preach the gospel to ourselves. And we trust that the Lord is still doing a work, even if my motives are mixed. I love that song by Wren Collective. We sing it here, Nailed to the Cross. When I stand accused by my regrets and the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned for Jesus Christ is my defense. Even with mixed motives, we don't go to the part of self-condemnation because Christ has already paid for that. We repent and move on. But in spite of the wicked motives that these pastors, these teachers of the word were doing, Paul rejoices that the gospel is being proclaimed. Despite his circumstances, despite his critics, he rejoices. Do you? Do you rejoice in what God is doing in your life, despite what may be going on and despite what people might be saying about you? How easy is it to be embittered towards people when we hear things? instead of rejoicing that God is doing a work? Do we rejoice that God is using our circumstances, even using our critics, for his own work of the gospel? R. Kent Hughes writes this, 
So the centrality of the gospel is the great question and challenge for us. Is the gospel first and foremost in our lives and in our church? The answer will determine our future. If the gospel is center in our church, our future, well, we have a future. God's going to bless that, and God's going to make that gospel go. But if the gospel's not center, I can tell you this, joy is not in our future. Let me say this, circumstances and critics will not thwart God's plan but they might thwart your joy if you let them. Paul responds in joy. Do you respond in joy? How can we even get there? I mean, this life is heavy. And hearing critics, we just mm, fall into a a, a state of self-pity so quickly. And, you know, you spill coffee on yourself, and the first thing you want to do is yell. How can we choose joy? How can we even get to a point that Paul got at? That just seems beyond our reach. We can get there because our Savior got there. Think about this. What if Jesus cared about his circumstances? Think about his circumstances. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he was poor. He took on the sins of the world. He suffered. What if Jesus had paid attention to the critics? Did he have critics? Everywhere he went. What if he'd let those critics get to him? If Jesus had paid attention to the circumstances and the critics, he would never have had joy and there would not have been the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus faced the cross because it was the Father's will for him to do so. Jesus laid everything aside and endured agony and shame for something greater. And because he did, we can. And that's how you choose joy. You look to your Savior. Epictetus was a Greek philosopher from the second century, and he's credited with saying this. It's not what happens to you, but how you react that matters. He's right, but how do we react in joy? By looking to our Savior. So Harvest, my challenge to you, choose joy, regardless of what happens, regardless of what's said about you. Choose joy because your Savior did. And let the gospel work in your heart. Let's pray. Praise the name of Jesus. You are good. 
You are right. You are true. Because of the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Because you did so, we can do so. Lord, I pray for a work in my heart. And I pray for a work in everyone's heart in this room. Because we're going to leave here today. And probably before we even get home, things will happen that we could so easily let steal our joy. This week, we're going to hear things that we don't like to hear about ourselves. And we can easily go to a place of throwing a pity party rather than a place of saying, no, I choose joy because somehow, even though I can't see it, somehow you're working in this. I pray that we would be a church that chooses joy despite the things that we face in our life. Work in us. We pray in the great and awesome name, the name of Jesus. Amen.